you podcast and yes I'm not a singer remember when environmentalists used to talk about population and then they didn't well we're talking about it here in this episode I talk with Joe Bish who for 10 years has headed issue advocacy for population media center the PMC does incredibly innovative work around the world in women's health equality and sustainability using soap operas Joe fills us in on what we're all up against, population overshoot. What does population have to do with climate change or with political instability or political correctness? Why do some economists want people to keep on breeding? Are we being fair to other species? Joe calls population a solution waiting to happen. We know what works for everyone's benefit. This is a conversation you're going to want to hear. Let's talk about what PMC does, because your approach is very interesting, and it really lends credence to the idea that stories are are what tell people how to live their lives. It's kind of our operating system. So, So why don't you talk about that? Okay, sure. I mean, indeed, I think throughout of human history, social evolution has been guided by the stories we tell each other and ourselves. Um, And PMC really does play off of that basic truth, but in a more, I guess, developed and sophisticated manner. Um, We really uh, work on a, a lot of issues, but it's always comes back to behavior and social norm change. So we're interested in a lot of different things, but it's really this trifecta of issues that we feel are very interconnected, which is the status of women and girls, uh, Mm -hmm. population size and growth, and environmental uh, sustainability and ecological health. Uh, And we we feel that there are very intricate interweavings between all those issues. Um, And as we look at those three issues, then we're called to work on a lot of sub-issues. So reproductive health, family planning, the promotion of small ideal family size, but also things like uh, secondary school education, um, female entrepreneurship, fighting against HIV AIDS, early enforced marriage, female genital mutilation, this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and our bedrock strategy, I would say, is to empower and motivate uh, audiences to make fully formed Uh, informed real-life decisions and the way we do that is uh, use broadcast mass media and we create entertainment education programs uh, in a serialized or long-running format Um, and in a nutshell our stories provide uh, new information awareness of new behavioral options for audience members and we use fictional role models that are 
really designed to resonate with the particular audience in question mm-hmm. um, to such an extent that uh, often our audience has fallen in love with these characters. And we're able to create the characters because we do uh, world-class formative research at the outset. So we'll go in and do ethnographic studies of what people are eating, what they're wearing, what the current slang is, how do they consume their media, what's the most popular clothes, all this sort of stuff. And we feed all this to our writers um, who we hire from the local culture as well. Mm -hmm. And we take all that information and then we walk them through a training um, in our methodology of behavior change, uh, which I said is a a theory-based method of creating entertainment uh, soap operas, really. And what happens is over the course of a one, two, or three-year program, um, these role models who are now admired and beloved by audiences, um, they basically spark a sort of real psychological desire uh, to adopt new behaviors, um, Hmm. encouraging audiences that uh, change is both desirable and possible, and also sort of creating a sense of confirmation that indeed the audience themselves can be the the motivator for this change. So self-efficacy is a good word we often use. Mm-hmm. So creating the confidence that um, change is possible. Doesn't it have a particular name? Didn't some guy found this methodology? Yes. Yeah, so a lot of our work does build off the work of Miguel Sabido. Uh, who was uh, a Mexican national working for a Televisa corporation. And he was stunned and very interested um, in the early 70s when there was a a program called Simplemente Maria that was aired actually in Brazil, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, and was about... um, this girl who moves to the city and, and falls in love and I don't know, some tragedy befalls her. I think her boyfriend leaves her and she's left destitute, but she decides to get her singer sewing machine and make mm-hmm. clothes to, to sort of advance herself. And she signs up for adult literacy classes. Well, all of a sudden, uh, Singer Corporation noticed this huge spike in um, sewing machine sales in the areas where this broadcast was uh, airing, and uh, this came to the attention of Miguel Savito. He said, oh, what's going on here? Um, So he uh, basically dedicated the rest of his career to figuring out why that worked, and he came up with a whole um, theoretical foundation for why these stories were having impacts, and then he built upon his theory to make it even stronger. So, uh, yes, you're correct. Uh, Miguel Sabido was a very crucial um, person in the whole evolution of uh, our form of education entertainment, though there were other people's work that he brought in there, like Albert Bandura, uh, social learning and social cognitive theories, and probably at least a dozen major psychological and communication theories all sort of we throw them all in the blender and come out <laughs> come out with a soap opera. Can you give can you give us an example of something in a particular country that you're working in now? Well, right now we have uh programs active in Nepal, Nigeria and the DRC. Um in the uh Nepal programs we're actually working on the issue of early enforced and child marriage. Mhm. 
So there's two different programs playing there, and they're in two different languages. Uh, and in a nutshell, the beneficiary audience of one is rural population, and the other audience is a uh, more urban population. And what our formative research found was that in the urban areas, um, what is happening is a little different in the rural areas. So in the urban mm-hmm. areas, the um, the kids, you know, the 15 and 16 year olds, you know, they're they want to have sex with each other. They want to be normal human beings. And but it's such a taboo to do that out of wedlock in Nepal that a lot of them were voluntarily eloping um, at a young age so that they then felt like they would be able to um, go ahead and, you know, have sex and have a normal relationship. Um, meanwhile, in the rural areas, it was still more of the traditional driver of child marriage where the family couldn't afford to keep the girl around or they want to mm. collect the dowry and that sort of stuff. So we created two different storylines for both of these programs. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't give you the details of the storylines, but it's always interplay between um, transitional characters and positive negative role models that are um, embedded within the stories. Um, I think maybe an elucidated example would be from Rwanda several years ago. We had a program there that was working on a couple of different issues, family planning being one of them, and then the preservation of gorilla habitat being the other. Hmm. And, th- and there was this character um, who was uh, had run upon hard times and he was having trouble feeding his family. And so a negative character approached him and, and persuaded him that it would be a good idea to um, capture uh, big gorillas and sell them on the black market. And that would be a good way to make some money. Um, meanwhile, he started dating a girl who worked in conservation and um, was very aware this would be devastating to the gorillas and would really harm the country over the long run. Um, and so she was counseling him to stay away from that, you know, don't do that. But he was desperate because he needed to gather some money up for his family. And so he decided to go set the traps and, and things go wrong. He ends up uh, getting caught in his own trap and losing a foot. Um, yep. And the gorilla's um, revenge. <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, so to make a long story short, he comes to see the uh, error of his ways and becomes an advocate for gor- gorilla habitat conservation. Um, and he ends up uh, being able to, to grow enough food and even prospering a little bit because of his other uh, advocacy work. So that gives you a sense uh, in a very abbreviated form how uh, we use role models, um, mm-hmm. the poacher and the girlfriend in this issue, the poacher in this circumstance, the poacher being the negative role model, the girlfriend mm-hmm. being the positive role model, and then the the lead character is the transitional character who goes through this sort of back and forth between positive and negative influences. But by the time the show concludes, uh, he's come to adapt the positive behavior. And then, of course, you know, we find in our monitoring and evaluation that large proportions of the audiences will emulate similar uh, decisions and behaviors in their real life. And you get real results from this, right? Because I read your um, newsletters. There was that one guy in Ethiopia who decided to get 
a vasectomy, even though a lot of other men were making fun of him. Right, right. Um, and he thought it was the right thing to do for his wife so she wouldn't have more children. You really examine the impacts, and they're significant, aren't they? Uh, most of the time, yes. Um, we uh, have uh, good results. I mean, there's a couple different things to PMC's value proposition. Um, because we have, we're doing entertainment, um, there's a universal human demand for entertainment. Uh, mm -hmm. And what sets us apart from a lot of other development agencies is we don't do direct messaging. Um, we don't do billboards. We don't do flyers. You know, we don't do PSAs. No one's going home at night after a long days of work to uh, listen to a PSA. They want to go home and be entertained. So mm -hmm. that's really sort of our entree um, in that sense. Uh, but certainly, uh, we do have huge impacts um, because we reach so many people. Um, we had a program in northern Nigeria a few years ago called uh, Ruandare. It was a radio serial drama. Um, and we actually had over 12 million people listening on a weekly basis wow. to our program. Um, now, the interesting thing there is because we're reaching so many people, our cost per listener uh, is very low, usually under a dollar per listener. Uh, to reach them with the messaging. And then in that situation, uh, we estimated that we catalyzed over a million new family planning users uh, because of the storyline. And so that was a, a cost of 89 cents uh, in U.S. dollars per new family planning user. We were able to motivate uh, that behavior change. What happens when you motivate someone is there necessarily access to family planning for them? Or have you taken a hit, for example, with the Trump administration and the gag rule and there not being enough uh, contraception or information or funding for that side of it to go around? Well, there's two two things there. Uh, first of all, the Trump decisions are just starting to percolate out through I know I read uh, yesterday that Mary Stopes International is cutting back a lot of their uh, clinics and services. So that's just starting. Um, but in the big picture, I mean, the idea here is when PMC decides that there's an, a need in a certain area for a serial drama, we go in and part of our formative research that I mentioned before is um, doing a service analysis in the area. So we're not going to go in and create a program that... Um, boost the demand for contraceptive uh, clinics uh, services if there's no contraceptive clinics in the area. Okay. Um, so mm -hmm. we always align ourselves with the existing infrastructure and uh, try to work with service providers in the area um, and basically, you know, put it on their radar that they may be seeing a, a significant boost in demand. How big an influence is something like my favorite organization, the Catholic Church, I have a friend who does wildlife films, and they were in Rwanda. This was before the the genocide there, uh -huh. and they were filming the mountain gorillas. And they were there for quite a while, got to know local people, and there were some women who were very involved in teaching local women about family planning, and they were saying how they were finally making some headway and then the Pope arrived, and I guess that was John Paul II at the time. Yeah. But that threw everything out, all their progress out the window. How much of a 
an emphasis does that have on people? I mean, I realize that's a really general question, but since, you know, since the Catholic Church is all over, yeah. and, and since Francis, for example, he was saying it's not a matter of controlling population, it's a matter of consumption. Uh, right. So how, how big an issue is that? Do you have to skirt that very delicately? Well, it's a huge issue in the big picture, um, you know, with the... Um, uh, papal doctrine called Human Vitae, published in the late '60s uh, by this or that pope. I ref- I can't remember. All the sixth. Yeah, so you know that explicitly states that contra- modern contraception is intrinsically evil. Um, right. So you know this has a huge effect all over the world. Um, to be a good Catholic, you you can't use contraception. Now in developing world, ninety eight percent of Catholic women have used modern contraception at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, <laughs> it's still uh, obviously as the Catholic Church is a huge role model um, for mm-hmm. people, both in the developing and developed world. Um, this sort of Basically, restriction on using modern contraception is a huge factor, and again, is something we would define actually as a social cultural barrier to uh, to use of contraception. It's it's a big deal, um, and I've heard, um, though I'm not holding my breath, that uh, uh, Francis is reviewing Human Vitae, um, uh-huh. and uh, there's concerns from the conservative wing of the Catholic Church that uh, Francis might be thinking about uh, appending or changing that doctrine. Um, you know, that would be wonderful. I'm not mm-hmm. holding my breath, but it would ma- it would make a huge difference. Um, and, you know, uh, more than any other previous pope, uh, Francis has really um, threw shade at sort of the the idea that contraception is intrinsically evil. I remember he was on a plane ride coming back from the Philippines, uh, I think in the first one or two years of his papacy. And he said, you know, uh, you know, having children is a responsibility and, and we don't need to breed like rabbits. Um, and of course he was excoriated uh, by the conservative (laughs) sector of the church but I mean I think more than any other pope I think maybe he gets it more than anyone else has and it would be great Mm -hmm. if he could change the doctrine Mm. because that's coming up on its 50th year now humanity correct and and it almost you know all the the backstory to that was they almost they had they had lay people involved, scientists, all kinds of people involved in discussing population, and they were going to liberalize the doctrine. And then a couple of cardinals said, "Hey, look, you can't do this because it will it'll look bad because we'll be backtracking, you know." Well, and so sure, we, we can't do omniscience that. of uh, omniscience of God right. would be called into question because you had consigned all these women to um, pain and suffering by not being able to access modern science and contraception. Um, and then to go back on that, it would erode the sense of infallibility uh, of the Pope and perhaps God himself. So, um, yeah, you're correct. That uh, commission did recommend liberalization, and uh, they were overruled. And are there certain standard issues or kind of standard cultural stories 
that cause people to have more kids than than they can support or that than the biome can support uh no <laughs> I no think so. <laughs> um i think uh there really is a, a very a lot of different causes and effect around the world you might argue that there is sort of this overarching thirty thousand foot pro growth ideology around the world but that manifests itself in very unique ways um you know you mean like a pro-economic growth Thing, uh, or... sort of I think it manif I think what I'm talking about manifests itself in the in the developed countries is pro-economic growth mm -hmm. but I, th I think you know through the ages um, human success has largely been divine defined by how big your flock is and um, how it is growing relative to others so I think it's more of a fundamental, deep, uh, maybe even subconscious bias that most humans have towards growth um, in general. And, and mm -hmm. that includes economic and population growth, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, How much of that do you think is a, is a function of patriarchy? You know, like if, if more women made the decisions, yeah. maybe that would not be as overbearing a drive. I agree. Um, I do think, and we define patriarchy as sort of sort of sociocultural driver of rapid population growth um, when we're looking at the problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess there's t a couple of different ways you can look at it. I mean, if you really want to get into the weeds of the population issue <laughs> itself, um, there are. Oh, it's pretty well known. There's about 220, 225 uh, million women in the developing world who have what is defined as an unmet need for contraception. Um, mm -hmm. And that is that they don't want to become pregnant in the next two years, but they aren't using a modern method of contraception. Um, and so many well-intentioned uh, commentators call that a lack of access to contraception as if it's a supply chain problem. Okay. Um, however, uh, if you really get in and looked at the data, um, Women with this condition, unmet need for contraception, rarely cite a cost, a convenience, or a lack of access. Rather, uh, the major impedance to contraceptive uptake um, are rooted in things like apprehension, uh, fear-inducing rumors about contraception, or mm. um, just uh, an antagonism towards contraception grounded usually in uh, religiosity, fatalism, or patriarchal social norms. Um, Gutmarker Institute uh, in, uh, I guess it was 2016, last year, uh, did a really good analysis of all this uh, in 52 developing countries, and they found that the lack of access problem really only applied to about 5% of those 214 million women uh, and the rest of the non-use uh, for women who didn't want to become pregnant the next two years uh, had to do with either personal or spousal opposition to contraception mm -hmm. uh, or, or uh, fears about side effects. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's sort of one angle of the population growth issue as it relates to the use of contraception. But there's another really important angle to this, um, and the, that's the non-users of contraception in the world who 
aren't seeking to avoid becoming pregnant. Um, so, for example, there's about 1.6 billion women of reproductive age uh, in the developing world, and only about half of them are uh, trying to avoid a pregnancy at all. Um, and if you look at some of the demographic and health survey results, um, you'll see the ideal number of children, for example, in Senegal is 5.6, and 61% wow. of all adults have no intention to use contraception ever in the future. Um, in Niger, the ideal number of children for men is 9.5. Um, wow. 40, 47% of adults have no intention to use contraception. So changing this situation requires much more than service provision or delivering contraception to these communities. It, it requires helping people understand the personal benefits in health and welfare for them and their children of fewer uh, spaced births and really requires a major shift in social attitudes and knowledge. So, and that's how PMC goes about things and, and using the role models and, and the entertainment mm -hmm. education. So, for example, if you're in a country where the, now when, when you're saying that the man, the average uh, man desires 9.6 kids or something, is that with one wife or with multiple wives? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's uh, an individual man's preference, the average preference. So that is an average, so... Assumingly, mm -hmm. some people pr would prefer two and some 18. Oh, my God. That's just amazing. How does somebody support that many children? I mean, how is it, how well, is it even possible? Uh, it's getting... At this point, many many aren't supporting them. <laughs> I just read, yeah. a, read a story about... Uh, what country was it in? I won't recall the country, but I read an interview yesterday of actually uh, some man had 26 children with four different right wives, and he was belatedly realizing that wasn't a very good idea because when push comes to shove, he couldn't actually provide for all those children. But you have to understand, um, I guess, the the power of sort of the cultural narratives of some of these areas. So mm -hmm. we, you know, we keep up on this issue. So we collect quotes we see in um, news articles and stuff coming from the developed world. So this is a 52 year old father of nine from Chad. And we, he was quoted in November, 2016 quote, it's a matter of pride to have a big family. Lots of children help you. It was not my choice. God gave them to me. Mm. Um, it sounds like the Duggars. Yeah, so there's this sense that, you know, um, God decided at the beginning of the universe how many children I was going to have. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether I use contraception or not. Um, you know, I'm going to have that many children and God will provide for all children that, you know, he brings to me. Um, so that, again, that's a sociocultural sort of uh, norm and, and tradition um, that really has a huge influence. Let's talk about the developed world because population issues are not just for, you know, not just in developing countries. Yes, you might have larger families in general, but the consumption levels are so incredibly different. What kind of work is PMC doing in the developed world? Sure. Um, 
So we are in the process of uh, expanding our portfolio in the developing world. Um, our first real traction in the United States, for example, uh, came with a, a program called East Los High uh, that was um, based in East Los Angeles. Um, mm -hmm. And we did a formative research that showed one out of two Latina girls was becoming pregnant before the age of 18 in that area. Um, wow. So we were called to do some work there. Um, so that show really did, um, you know, focus on our traditional areas of reproductive health, sexual reproductive rights, status of women, uh, HIV avoidance, and those sort of issues. Uh, very germane, even in the developed world. Um, mm -hmm. But I hear you on the um, on the bigger issues of environmental sustainability, though. The United States is somewhat of an exception because we still have very rapid population growth in the United States. Um, not all countries um, really do. Uh, for example, uh, Japan. Um, mm -hmm. But we're, we do want to get into more of the environmental role modeling. We do want to start to address consumption, uh, conservation, uh, conspicuous consumption. I think these are all very important things. Um, you know, there's no confounding the fact that the overall size of the human population, whether it's at the national or global level, sort of sets a scale of human behaviors and uh, environmental impacts. Uh, you know, a population of 7,000 people is going to consume at a larger scale than a population of 700 people. And the same thing when you start counting in the billions. Of course, it is a confounded issue because of the stunning disparities in access and consumption of resources. Um, and, you know, that's found both between countries. So, as you said, the United States consumes the equivalent of five planets worth of resources every year. But also within the United States, we have a huge disparity uh, between consumption and, and access to resources. So... You know, uh, in the big picture of global sustainability, the primary objective, I think, is really to match the aggregate human consumption to the sustainable yield of the planet's uh, renewable biocapacity. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly to do that, total resource extraction, production, and consumption are going to need overall reductions, but also importantly, a restructuring within those scaled down totals to contribute to social justice imperatives. Um, because the truth is that um, most of humanity is in need of more resources, not fewer. Um, at least uh, two and a half to three billion people of the 7.5 billion people alive today desperately need more material resources if they're going to escape poverty and, and achieve anything close to minimal uh, standards of nutrition, housing, and sanitation. But obviously, at the same time, globally, the human project is over-consuming right now. So it all comes down to the truth that uh, there's a minority of our human population consuming way beyond their minimum needs while billions struggle to survive on a bare, bare minimum. Now, having said that, um, it's not clear um, that even a fully equitable redistribution of resources um, so that everyone is at the same level, um, well, actually, it is clear. Even that would be unsustainable. Um, I think we With would. With the current population, you mean? Correct. So mm -hmm. I think we would have to go back to. 
uh, consuming at the rate of a modern Somalian to uh, consume resources at a sustainable level at this point, which, of course, nobody wants to do, including Somalians. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the arguments that that we keep hearing about the birth dearth um, that people in developed countries, and they use Japan as an example, or Italy, are not reproducing enough to provide the kinds of tax for social programs like Social Security, et cetera, for older people. Right. This is a huge issue. We deal with this all the time. Uh, where to begin? Um, <laughs> well, first of all, people, uh, neoliberal economists get very scared when we talk about population stabilization decline because it undercuts the Ponzi scheme that's been foisted upon us. Um, if you don't have more people buying in every year to an unsustainable system like a Ponzi scheme, it's going to collapse. Um, and so that's the root of the fear. Another comment is that when the retirement age of 65 was set some eons ago with FDR, retirement age was set as 65 and uh, life expectancy for, for uh, males at the time, I think, was 62. So uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> they weren't planning on paying much out. <laughs> Um, my mother's 91 yeah exactly my grandmother's 95 um, mm -hmm. so that's one thing so clearly I'm not disparaging uh, the fact that a uh, aging population is going to require innovation changed policies etc but it's a human problem that can be solved with human innovation it's not a biological fact that an aging population is an economic problem. Economics are completely a concoction of the human animal, and therefore we can solve those problems if we're serious about solving them. Um, mm -hmm. However, it is a fact that we're in uh, ecological overshoot. Uh, anyone paying attention can understand that. We've passed uh, at least two planetary boundaries in terms of climate and uh, fertilizers, uh, unnatural fertilizers. Yeah. So, and, and we're right at the doorstep of many other limits. So I'm glad that you mentioned Japan. Hardly a day goes by, in fact, no day goes by without some white-knuckled uh, frantic news report from some other developed country <laughs> bemoaning that uh, Japan's population was stable between 2006 and 2013, I believe, and that subsequently there have been ongoing decreases in the Japan population. The latest year, there was a 300,000-person decrease. Um, so this is seen as absolutely catastrophic by uh, neoliberal economists from all around the world. There's only one group of people who don't feel any sense of urgency about this, and that's the Japanese. There's no sense of crisis among the Japanese people. And in fact, in the summer of 2016, the prime minister uh, said that Japan's aging, shrinking population was not a burden, but an incentive to boost productivity through innovations like robots and artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. Um, in fact, uh, he gave a speech where he uh, said, Frankly, I have no worries about Japan's demography. Uh, Japan may be aging, may be losing its population, but these are incentives uh, because we're going to grow 
our productivity. And so Japan's demography, paradoxically, is not an onus, but a bonus. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I guarantee you didn't hear that on uh, the headlines of CNBC <laughs> that day. Um, totally cuts against the orthodoxy of neoliberal economic growth. Um and just goes to show you uh, there's a lot of vested interests in the world that don't want to see a population stabilization, certainly don't want to see a, a population decrease because there's no money in that. Right. Um, I just think it's important to remember that we are an ecological overshoot. Japan should be looked at right now as a role model for the whole world. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the birth dearth arguments, some of them may be well-intended, but a lot of them are just, uh, smoke and mirrors from pro-growth ideologues, um, that simply can't imagine a world without ongoing perpetual growth. Right. And no one even looks at steady state economics, different kinds of economic models. And so what we're doing is privileging an invention, the invention of economics over something that's primary, and that's an ecological reality. Could you outline a situation that you know of where instability was just exacerbated by by population growth? Sure. That was really kind of what, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of them, but you don't necessarily hear population singled out as being part of part of an unstable situation correct you you often don't um however um i think there's always been a sense in the intelligence community that population growth is a hugely destabilizing trend uh under the wrong circumstances in fact uh it was Hayden back in 2008 who cited population growth as one of the top three destabilizing trends in the world uh more Hmm. more recently um the president of Egypt uh, said the two biggest threats facing his country were terrorism and population growth. Um, Egypt's family planning program was basically annihilated uh, during the uh, uprisings and uh, hasn't recovered yet, and therefore their population growth has really taken off again to a disconcerting uh, rate and leaders mm-hmm. are starting to worry. Uh, to answer your question more specifically, though, um, I think the best example that I'm aware of is really ongoing right now, um, and that's in northern Nigeria, um, where uh, there are herdsmen um, who like to roam their cattle uh, all over the place um, in northern Nigeria and have done so since time immemorial. Um, However, with uh, growing agrarian communities, growing agrarian uh, populations who are expanding from uh, central and southern zones up into the north, um, there's been ongoing violence between the herdsmen and the agrarian communities. In fact, uh, in 2016, Nigeria estimates um, over 2,500 people lost their life in skirmishes between the uh, farmers and the herdsmen. Um, Wow. So... Certainly, I think that's a, a ongoing case right now where population growth is, is the primary factor. There are also um, some environmental factors. There's been a drought, so the herdsmen have to range their cows farther than they might uh, in mm-hmm. better conditions. But nonetheless, population growth is a huge factor. And the, the story I like to tell on this is... Uh, 
the Kenyan uh, father who bequeathed his land, he divided it between two of his surviving sons. And one son had another 10 sons, and the other son had two sons. So when the when the two original sons went to subdivide their land, the one with 10 sons, you know, was only able to offer a half acre to all his sons, and the other ones was able to offer, uh, offer five. Um, mm-hmm. So that's an allegory, but it gives you the sense of the power of uh, rapid population growth to cause tension because <laughs> the sons who only got a half acre were none too pleased to look over and see the their cousins had uh, five acres piece. Yeah, you can imagine. Hey, let's talk about how population ties in with climate change. I was talking with Laura Carroll, who's written a couple of books about population and about child-free people in, in this country. Right. She had, in one of her books, some information about how a woman in the United States, for example, having one fewer child creates a 20-time greater climate impact, I mean, positive uh, change, than all of her other activities combined, whether she's driving an electric car or changing light bulbs or, you know, just doing things differently um, in these smaller ways that having one fewer child can really um, make an incredible difference. Well, it's it's very uh, interwoven. And so there's a lot to talk about there. Um, I'm familiar with the Oregon State study uh, that you uh, are citing there. Uh, That is a good Mm -hmm. study to go back and look at. Um, There's another good one, a 2010 study that was published uh, by the National Academy of Sciences. That was written by a guy named Brian O'Neill, and it was titled Global Demographic Trends and Future Carbon Emissions. And he showed that uh, slowing population growth um, could provide 16 to 29% of the emissions reductions thought to be necessary by 2050 to avoid dangerous climate change. And so that's another uh, resource uh, your listeners might want to uh, go and look at. More recently, uh, Paul Hawken, a well-known environmental activist, mm-hmm. uh, he came out with the with the Drawdown Project, and he listed the hundred top solutions to um, removing carbon uh, or not putting carbon into the atmosphere. And uh, he was quite confident that it would be technological solutions uh, with solar and wind and so forth. And if they found out uh, that actually the number one solution is a combination of educating girls and promoting family planning around the world, uh, again, because of the population factor. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a little more, more recent uh, example, similar to what the Oregon State and the National Academy study found. And so, then Sounds pretty convincing. Yeah, it sounds overwhelming if you're, you know... Uh, open to that and don't immediately reject the possibility that, that there could be that sort of direct connection out of hand, which many people want to do. Um, Why do they want to do that? No, I think it's just, it doesn't, um, well, I mean, it goes back to the controversy of the population issue, the sensitivity around those issues, the influence of the Catholic Church, the the sort of uh, parent-centered model that 
most of Western civilization champions when it comes to childbearing, which is that you can have as many as you want, and any infringement mm-hmm. on that is uh, an infringement on your human rights. Let's talk about political correctness and and population, because that's something that I know uh, Bill Ryerson has spoken about and written about. And um, what do you come up against when when people think that maybe you are impinging on their on their rights when you're talking about limiting their birth rate? Sure. Well, fortunately, that never comes up in our programs um, because we're actually empowering people to make their own choices. And so that's not really an issue. Where we run into it is more of our theoretical commentary on global sustainability and and the primary need to stabilize and gradually decrease population. That's when we will uh, maybe experience some static. You know, I guess if if arguments could be run on fact alone, this issue would have been you know decided a long time ago. Um, usually, people are bringing forth very emotionally laden arguments, uh, feeling that uh, you know we're trying to tell people what to do. Who are you to say what I should do? And they're always grounded in a very strong anthropocentrism, in my mm-hmm. experience. Um, that completely look at the planet Earth as a vessel for human exploitation and uh, enjoyment and rarely consider uh, the moral and ethical dimensions of the rights of other species to exist. Clearly, uh, with our amazing, rapid, and humongous population growth over the last century, uh, we've uh, exterminated a lot of our fellow species with many more uh, on the chopping block and and many more actually going extinct every day. Um, Mm. But very few people are willing to open up their ethical, moral uh, comfort zones and and embrace those sorts of considerations into the question of human population. Um, This is one of my colleagues, Eileen Christ, has to say there's a real human supremacy complex that has poisoned a lot of contemporary thinking. Uh, Maybe it always has, I don't know. But it's the sense that humans have an innate superiority over other animals, and that's not only well within our rights, but it's natural to um, subdue and uh, manipulate the planet as we see fit, and therefore suggesting Mm -hmm. that we should uh, voluntarily restrain our numbers to fit within our niche uh, is insulting to a lot of people. Mm. And meanwhile, aren't humans using something like 50%, depending on how it's calculated, 50% of net primary productivity? Uh, I think that would be... Yeah, I think that would be underestimation, but I would have to look that up. But yes, you're on the right track. Yeah, that. so for people who don't know what net primary productivity is, it's all, all of what's produced by photosynthesis minus what the plants use for themselves for respiration and whatnot. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And so if, if one species is using at least half, probably more, of all the available food made by plants um, that doesn't leave much for all the other millions of species who, who we rely on. Whether or not you feel the, the fellowship with other creatures, scientifically you rely on them. Correct, <laughs> yes. The other. yes. So, and that um, goes from in our gut. Um, with the bacteria in our guts to the uh, 
microbes in the ocean that produce a lot of the oxygen we breathe. Right, right, yeah. You're, you've been doing this for 20 years now, or at least PMC has, and you've been doing it for about 10. Yeah. You must see hope in this or uh, results in this to, to continue doing it. Is that, would you say that's the case? Uh, you know, I feel um, certainly that PMC does a lot of good work in the world. Um, I think um, our ability to bring new options and new choices for behavior, uh, liberating people around the world is a great thing. I'm very proud of the work we do around the status of women, promoting family planning. I do think that we've helped to mitigate um, the sustainability and population uh, challenges that we face. Um, and I think we'll continue to get better at that and really have a positive effect. Um, I think that from a organizational perspective, we're, we're doing really well with that. And we've uh, impacted over 500 million people by our estimates in over 50 countries since 1998. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, we've got tens of thousands of listener letters from around the world telling us how their shows, our shows have, uh, positively impacted their life. We've got all this wonderful M and E research, uh, about, um, how we, what kind of research, uh, monitoring and evaluation. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, we're doing a lot of good work. I mean, that said, I think it's very true and common knowledge that we're in a state of ecological overshoot. Uh, we're seeing the mm -hmm. signs of that um, becoming more urgent and rapid. Um, we are continuing to grow by 1.5 million person net growth every week, um, mm. which is over 80 million a year. We're rapidly approaching 8 billion, and we've been adding a billion people to the planet every 12 to 14 years uh, for the past, uh, I guess, 30 or 40 years. Um, so a lot of. And on your website, you know, if you just go onto the PMC website, it's, it's stunning. You says since you started your visit, 150 people have been born. It's just like, it's, I just got here. Right, right. It, it's just, and that's not it's birth, amazing. that's net growth, by the way. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, so. Oh, I thought maybe it was just births. So that's net, that's including the deads. Yeah, correct. I mean, very roughly speaking, there's about 400,000 births every day and around 200,000 deaths every day. Most demographic agencies uh, figure there's between 200,000 to 230,000 net growth every day. Wow, that's incredible. That's just that's just nuts. Well, I mean, I do think that, that it's important to approach the population issue with the sense of the population growth isn't an intractable problem. Uh, that is makes all of our other efforts at trying to achieve a sustainable planet useless. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people adapted that philosophy and worldview um, for many years. And, you know, I really look at population uh, as a solution waiting to happen. There are well-known, well-tested ways to uh, impact family size that are human rights enhancing, progressive, and really healthy. Um, it's 
been accomplished time and again in diverse countries like Thailand, South Korea, even the country of Iran. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a win-win situation to bring information, services, education, uh, to raise the status of women uh, right. in all these different vectors of society and to have the pleasing end result to be smaller family size and more sustainable populations. For a long time, uh, people who sensed the urgency of the population issues sort of instinctually went to this place where they felt, well, we need to control this. We need to do something. We need to push down on these fertility decisions. We need to push down on the on the population trends and in truth the way we look at it is population trends fertility decisions they're really being held up by this artificial scaffolding of low status of women lack of access to information and services uh, they're being stymied by these myths rumors and fears and patriarchy around access to contraception uh, girls need to be educated. There needs to be social equity between men and women. All these things, if you start pulling out those planks of that scaffolding, fertility falls of its own accord. And all those planks mm -hmm. of the scaffolding are things that most progressive people, indeed most good, sensible people would feel need working on anyway. Um, right. So who would say no to the education of girls or who would say no to having clean water, you know, easily accessible so the girls don't have to schlep the water and they can go to school? I mean, those are all just ethical goods. Indeed. Um, of course, that's easy to say uh, sitting here today um, and, yeah, and, sure. and in many countries around the world. Uh, there's absolutely no sense that it's worth educating a girl. Um, they may get some education if resources are left over after the boys are educated, but they very well may not. Um, so again, it's a social-cultural norm, um, and that's where PMC comes in with our theory of change um, around social norm change, individual behavior change, demand generation for services. That's what we specialize in. That's uh, what our entertainment education does is to to really engage with these deeply held sociocultural issues and norms in a non-threatening way that really bring questions to the, the minds of the audiences in, in ways mm -hmm. that a PSA or a flyer or even door-to-door -door conversations probably wouldn't be as effective because no one likes to be challenged on their beliefs. So this is a real, really effective way to, to go about it. And so we're mm -hmm. happy about that work. But just to reiterate, I mean, it's a really diverse world out there and it, it may make total perfect sense for you, me, and other other people listening, whether they be conservative or liberal, of course we should educate our girls. Well, that's not the case everywhere in the world. Um, right. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do. But again, it's been proven to work. I mean, Iran was a huge success story um, on this issue in the, I guess it was mid-90s or so. Um, you know, they realized they had a population problem. Um, their population growth rate was over 3%, which is unheard of. Um, mm -hmm. And they said, this is a problem. We've got to we've got to do something. So they did. And the Ayatollah said, well, it's okay to promote contraceptives now. They said uh, vasectomies were no longer against the law. 
Um, they created a huge network of health houses that offered free family planning services. Um, they used the print media, TV, radio schools um, to educate uh, youth and families about population growth and family planning. And, um, and, you know, what I think was the most important thing, arguably, is the status of women was boosted considerably because primary and secondary education was finally opened up to women and girls. So wow. they, ha they had a, a, a dramatic turnaround um, in their population growth rate. They achieved their goals, I think, like they had a 20-year goal to bring their growth rate from 3.2% to 2.2%. They accomplished it in like seven years or something really wow. amazing like that. So it just goes to show you it can be done if, if there's really the political will to do it. And hopefully, you know, um, that will happen because... I don't think anyone who's really considered the issue thinks that, um, that it's going to be a sustainable planet with 9.8 billion people by 2050 mm. or the 11.7 mm. or whatever it is for 2100. Um, seems very unlikely since we're not sustainable at this time even. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what you're saying about Iran sounds a lot more subtle and effective than the China one-child policy which, that a lot of people felt was very draconian, um, especially since if you, if you have a girl child and she gets married, she's going to go and, and help her in-laws, not you. Uh, mm -hmm. That seemed to be kind of a built-in problem. Yeah, I mean, I, most people consider the China uh, policy unethical, clear violation of, I don't know, I guess human dignity, um, and completely unnecessary. Uh, China's fertility rate was already falling dramatically when they instituted this policy. Um, you know, it really was condemnable, um, and deservedly so, especially when you have a progressive alternative like Iran, who accomplished mm -hmm. the exact same thing in a very... Um, embraceable and sensible manner. Hey, thank you, Joe. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Joe Bish, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about the Population Media Center, you can go to www.populationmedia.org. I also have that link on the show notes. You can go to thebigchewpodcast.com and find that. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or however you got this. Thanks very much. Bye for now.